and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome and introduce Misty Abnew, um, who will do our plen first plenary this morning. Misty Abnew, who I know is known by many of us here in the ACT, is an adjunct associate professor in language, literacy and TESOL at the University of Canberra and a principal fellow at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. She has served as the president of two national teachers associations, TESOL Greece and the Australian Council of TESOL Associations and is on the board of directors of TESOL International, an affiliation of 105 teachers associations around the globe. She presents at national and international conferences and works with school leaders around the country, focusing on empowering teachers to teach literacy in engaging and challenging ways. We are very fortunate that many of us have had the opportunity to work with Misty through her research, professional learning, and, in, and more recently with our writing inquiries in our secondary schools. Misty has examined our ACT data and she, and, and she has seen that we are amongst the country's highest performers in reading and writing when they're in year three. However, we fail to capitalise on that strong start. As our children move through school, the number of underperforming students are increasing and the inverse is occurring for our high achieving students. Their numbers decrease as we move through school. Misty's provocation to us today is are our students failing because we have sucked the wonder of learning out? Have we made the most wondrous of all human inventions, the written word, tedious and inane? It is time to raise our expectations and what our children can achieve and to bring the wonder back to learning, read and write. I introduce Misty. There's a lot of familiar faces in the room, and truly, I am so pleased to be doing a homegrown um, conference because I'm truly homegrown. I was uh, born, a, uh, I don't know, a kilometre away in Canberra Hospital, and then of course I went to uh, Lynham Preschool, and then I went to Lynham Infant School, and then I went to Chipley Primary School, and then I went to Melrose High School, and then I went to Stirling College, and then I went to the Canberra College of Advanced Education, and then I became a teacher. Um, but while I was at the Canberra College of Advanced Education, I worked as a library assistant at Charnley Primary School and as a teacher's assistant at McGregor Primary School and as a special teacher's assistant at Kamari, now um, um, Black Mountain, yes. Um, then I became a teacher and worked at, gosh, where did I work? At Norwell Primary School. Actually, I'm a bit, I'm reluctant to tell you the schools I worked at because they all closed down. <laughs> <laughs>
wondering why our kids don't find it so wondrous. So here's a little graph. This is Australian Year 9 writing over time. Uh, I've got two lines on this graph. There's the below benchmark line. Now you want that to have the smallest number possible. And the far above benchmark line, so far above in your top band, so that's going to be a band 10 up in year 9. You want that to be as big a number as possible. And way back in 2008 when we began this journey we called Mathland, uh, this is what it looked like. So we had around about 12% of kids below the benchmark and around about 8% of kids above the benchmark. Okay, then the next year, after one year of responding to that plan, in whatever way we did, Australia then um, managed to decrease the number of kids who were below benchmark. So that was uh, a good news line. Um, but we managed to increase, uh, sorry, also decrease the number of kids who were far above benchmark, which is not such a good news line. But never mind, that's one year. So what happened next year? Okay. So we managed to increase again the number of kids who were below benchmark. Not such a good direction to go in. Um, and we kind of stayed steady on the kids who were far above benchmark. So really what we want, just to, um, so we know, we, we want this red line to go down. We want this green line to go up. That's what we want. So what happened then the next year? They just don't do what we want them to do. They don't go in the right direction. And then what happened the next year? And then what happened? And then what happened? And then what happened? And then what happened? So ironically, our best year was the first year we ever did that plan. And then what happened? What happened after that? Um, so lots of people tell me, oh, there you go, there's 2017. Um, so when I show you this graph to teachers, and I show it to teachers a lot, I particularly show it to secondary teachers, because it's year nine, that plan data. Um, and the responses are many and varied. They're, oh, technology. It's technology. The kids are on their screens all the time. And so hmm, they're not writing. Um, it's um, motivation that I want to write, that I want to do the writing, you can see it, that's, that's a motivation decrease there. Um, very rarely do we get to the, oh, we're not doing the job very well, rarely do we kind of get to that. We're kind of always looking for excuses for what's happening with the kids that this is happening. So I think two things are happening here. I do think it's something to do with motivation. I do think year nine kids are overwriting. And I think that's on us. We made them overwrite. How many times can you write that 40 minute essay on why you should or shouldn't wear school uniforms before you're overwriting? Like how many times? I reckon three. Four, five times, then you're overriding. 
Who wants to write anymore if that's what writing is? Particularly if nobody's ever going to read your persuasive essay to be persuaded of anything. Who will read it to be persuaded? Are you going to change the uniform policy as a result? No. So they learn really, really early on in our efforts to teach to this um, test, they learn very early on that writing isn't a genuine, authentic, communicative act. They learn that it's some kind of game you play at school. You do it, you do it again the next day, next week you do it again. Nobody even reads what you have to say. You just keep doing it. So I think there's something about motivation there, and I think the motivation lays on us. Why were they okay at writing in the beginning? And why did they not continue to be, why did they not improve? And then how much is it to do with how we're actually teaching them? <laughs> not just how we're motivating them, but are we giving them the skills they need to become better writers? <coughs> So those are my questions for you. I have another little thought bubble here. So this year, this is the year when it all went really bad, right? Just out of interest, that's the year that my school website went live. So I'm wondering, did we change the way we taught writing in schools when we were under public pressure, when the public eye was on us, when when we got pressure from up above, did we change the way we taught writing in schools? Did we change what we asked our teachers to do? Did we? You need to ask the question, did we change? This year, or 2018, this was the general result. National NAPSAN data shows a steady decline in writing results over the past decade, including 2018. So we just continue to get worse in 2018. So I think there's a sad irony in the fact that we have worked tirelessly to improve those NAPSAN writing results. Everybody has been doing interventions to improve those NAPSAN writing results. Sad irony that it's not working and that along the way, perhaps we've sucked the magic out of it. So not only have we not managed to get the kids writing better, but we've managed to turn them off writing as well. That's a bad result. So, at the very least, we could just do everything differently from what we've been doing. What have we got to lose by doing something differently? So my suggestion is today to think really differently about how we think about writing. Just so you can see, that was ACT, so we're not that different from the graph for, the, for Australia. Not that different. There you go. Um, there, there was our best year. 2009 was our best year. And after that, whew, we did the same thing. We just got those lines further and further away from each other. Fewer kids far above and more kids below. So, the magic of writing. How are we going to teach it back? Um, let me tell you a little bit about the magic of writing. I, Sue indicated in the beginning of the presentation that um, writing is amazing, an amazing human invention. It's criminal that our kids should leave school thinking it's tedious. There is no better human invention than writing. Imagine this. 
you have this invisible stuff that comes out of your mouth and somehow the thought was this could go down on a piece of paper and that other people could read it. That your words wouldn't be lost into the ether, they would be on a piece of paper permanently for all time and that anybody who read what you wrote, their brain would never be the same again. You would literally change the structure of someone else's brain because they've read what you wrote. And that this writing would stand the test of time that you wrote it and in 10 years time, somebody could still read it. In 100 years time, somebody would still read it. That your impact would be across time and across space. What an amazing human invention. Kids should be loving writing for the power that it has. It shouldn't be. We have to do another 40 minute persuasive piece on why you strongly believe something. Firstly because of this, secondly because of that. It should be more wondrous than that. So how did writing start? We will prop you to help me along the way with this. So writing started actually like this, as hieroglyphics. So that was that first wondrous thing. Okay, I, I want to put this down so other people can read it. And how will I put it down? I'll, I'll kind of draw pictures of what it is that I want to say to you. And then you've got to read my pictures. And that was the hieroglyphics. And then it wasn't long before the Phoenicians were like, oh, hieroglyphics, it's a little hard. Like, there's a lot of pictures I have to draw there. And I don't know whether everybody can understand my pictures. And so the Phoenicians said, hmm, we could do these kind of symbols that would represent pictures. And they have these cuneiform way of writing, little symbols that represented pictures. So from the beginning, words have been representations of meaning. So these little symbols represented meaning. Um, but they were complicated. It's complicated to have so many symbols representing so much meaning. And so the alphabet came along. It developed out of those little symbols. And then we have versions of the alphabet. They all came from, originally, those symbols, which came from those pictures. So we're getting it more and more abstracted now. Uh, that's amazing. That these little abstract symbols could represent all of this meaning that comes out of our mouths, all of these original thoughts that we have. Um, <clears throat> and then people get control of it, and they, they uh, pass their messages on. It's how messages and knowledge is spread across the, uh, across the world. Um, big messages, like religious messages, it's how religion is spread. Because of this ability to share this written word. And there you have very few people who were able to use it. There were the monks, and you can see some beautiful manuscripts in there. You can see the red letters, see those red letters? Those are the religious days, the very special religious days. So if you know the expression of red letter day, that's where it comes from, from the monks using red ink to mark the special religious days. And then, of course, the, so the monks are there kind of handwriting all of this stuff out, this beautiful, wondrous writing, handwriting it out. But then something amazing happens. We invented a printing press. 
You don't need a monk now to do this. You have a printing press that can print off this stuff. Print it off, and once you've got all of this printed stuff in front of people, now you can communicate with thousands, millions of people. The printing press was an amazing step in the evolution of writing. More people could read and write. You know what? Even though the printing press came along in the 1600s, you still had many, many, many illiterate people because there were no schools to teach them how to read and write. So, next slide is this lovely little machine here. It's used by scribes all through the 1700s and the 1800s and even into the 1900s, the early 1900s. This one is an Ottoman uh, tool. So what happens is you, you open up here. This is where your feather goes. This is where your ink goes. And you carry around with you as a scribe. There you go. And there's your, sits up there, there's your ink. You pull your feather out, you dip it in your ink. And you're a mobile scribe for all those people who can't write but who want to communicate, who need to communicate. And that's their job. They're traveling scribes. They go through all of the Ottoman Empire writing for people. But then, of course, schools came. And schools had that hugely democratizing job of teaching children how to write. So you didn't need to employ a scribe anymore, that you would be the person who has the power, that you would be the powerful person, hugely democratizing. Yeah. And that's where we all sit. We now are the people who show kids how to use writing for powerful purposes. That's our job. And it all starts so well. Little children getting their idea of how writing works to communicate messages. This is a lovely piece of writing from my boy when he was three. He's going through the evolution of writing at an individual level. So he's going through, I have a message I want to give to you, Mama. And I'm going to give you the message through pictures. And he's, he said to me, it's a love letter. And it was a love letter. There were mountains of flowers. There was love hearts and kisses. And he's getting the idea that he needs to put these across the page. He's getting the idea that he leaves spaces between his ideas. So he's on the evolutionary route to writing. And here's another little girl who's one step along. So the next little girl, she's not my little girl, she's a little girl who's had a fight with her mama. She and her mama have had a fight. Her name is Olive. 
and she's pushed a little note. She's written and pushed a little note under the door. <laughs> Mum's heart is broken and Olive is sad. And so she's one step along. She knows now that she could use these abstract symbols and that they will always say mum. When she puts them down on the paper in that order, they will always say mum. That's an amazing step in her evolution. That's incredible. And the thing that I love most about my Andreas on the previous page and Olive on this page is that they understand that writing is about communication. That writing is how they will have an impact on the reader. They understand that that's what writing is. They understand that. So that means that four and five-year-olds step into our classrooms ready for this. I want to communicate to people through this thing called writing that I see the grown-ups do, and I want to do it too. So ready for it. They get that it's magical. So how does it go from that to that wondrous, wondrous thing? How does it go from that by the time they're five years old and in kindergarten to that? So I know this is your young life, but you were surrounded by that. Every kindergarten to year two child, graded on 791 literacy educators, educators every five weeks. That's just 20 of the 791 literacy educators. Like, how does it go from the child walking into the classroom believing that this is the magic of communication to this? And then what do we keep doing? What do they keep doing? What do they think writing is? Get your teachers to do an interview with your, year, with your five year olds. What do they think writing is? It's amazing how very quickly they change their ideas of what writing is. In that plan 2018 writing, you know, the one that hasn't been published in even though we're about to sit 2019 now. What were the results? The scores were the lowest since the tests were introduced a decade ago. Footnote, this was, the, this was the positive spin I heard at the end of last year. Language convention papers getting better though. Um, that's good news, surely. Surely that's good news. So let's have a look at that. Year creating that plan over time. There you go. That's what's been happening with writing. Steady decline of kids far above. Kids who are far above interest me. Like, these high achievers interest me. Because they're very good. They must be a joy to teach. I don't know what happens that we don't evaluate to them. And there they are, slow decline. But good news, here's the language convention paper. Whoa, meteoric rise. So my question is, who cares? <laughs> Surely, what would the point of getting better at the language conventions paper be if you're not getting better at writing? 
how was that an amazing piece of writing? What was the technique that the author used? So that's my first what if. What if we did teach grammar, but we taught it as creativity? We taught it as, how does the author do what the author does to me? How does the author make me feel like that? How does the author make me think that? How did that author change my mind? How did they do that? And then I go in and have a look at the techniques they used. Ah, see what they were doing? Such a clever use of a personifying verb. I get what you're doing to me now. Oh my goodness, the way you started that sentence with that action, with that clutching her mother's hand. That's how I got worried for that little girl because the clutching told me she's scared. Oh, such clever use of language. But I can't understand how clever the use of is if I don't understand the whole first. So what have we taught grammar is creativity? Let me show you what happens when you teach like that. So this is a year five girl. There runs Kate Kimmons, darting through the quiet village, creeping past old quaint houses, their windows shine like still mirrors reflecting her bad deed. Up above, she can see the rain. Its crystal drops plummet onto the street. In the jailhouse, the convicts, their lives breaking like shattered glass. What a gorgeous piece of writing. Whatever grade she is, but she's in year five. She's in year five. She's not just that talented one, you know, that one who can write that you put her story in the newsletter every week. This girl, this girl writes like this because her teacher teaches her class how language works, how grammar works for creative purposes. And let me show you some of the grammar that the teacher was focused on. First of all, they loved the way another author did their work. They loved the work of Margaret Wilde in a book called Jenny Angel. And they, first of all, they responded to the book and then they were like, whoa, hang on, how did the writer make us feel that way? And they looked and they saw, these are some of the things the teacher noticed and taught grammar-wise to the kids. That these second and third lines start with continuous verbs, darting, creeping, and as a result, that's what you see first. You see darting, you see creeping, and the fact that they're continuous verbs means you see them like a movie. So the focus is on darting, and there she is, through the quiet village. Creeping, and there she is, past old quaint houses. She learnt this from her teacher, noting this about grammar, that the verbs you choose matter, that the tense you use is matter, that where you put them in the sentence matters, and it matters for this reason, because you will change the picture that your reader sees with the choice of the words you make, with the choice of the sentence structures you use. You will control the mind of your reader, and you will do it through your creativity with your grammar. So I'm a grammar nerd, but it's irrelevant to 
better in that language convention paper. You were not getting better in our writing. Grammar is how you get to be creative. Grammar is how you discover the magic. So what if we taught grammar to be What if we stopped looking for catchphrases or programs to do the teaching of writing? And my goodness, do I hear a lot of catchphrases out there. I get to hear about the sizzling sparker. I get to hear about the show not tell. I get to hear about the say when, where, why, how in your opening sentence. And it all results in pretty ordinary writing. So what if we understood that you can't teach to a slogan? You can't teach to a catchphrase. So what you need to do is try, try and find a program that will solve the problem and invest in your teachers because your teachers will solve the problem. Teachers want to get in there and do the kind of work that I describe. They don't have the knowledge to do it. So what if you just up their skills? Invest in your teachers. Stop looking for the program or the catchphrase. What if we invested in teachers instead of publishers? Teachers are your people. Publishers are multinational. Invest in your people. So what happens if you invest in your own teachers? Well, ACT invested in your own teachers last year when we ran the, the secondary literacy program. And I show you what happens when you invest in your teachers. So this is a 12-year-old EAL student in one of your secondary schools in the ACT. And this is how he was writing at the beginning of the program. Jin and Mina are in high school and for Jin's birthday they're going to the space. Jin always wants to go to the space and they did go to the space. And this is how he's writing at the end of the program. Everybody at the mall was surprised at seeing a statue that had never been there before. There it stood in front of the main desk, its marble legs shining, its human face happy and joyful, casting a long shadow across the entrance, across the mall itself. That's what happens when you invest in your teachers. It wasn't a program that got him to that. It was the teaching that got him to that. It was the teacher who now knew how language works and could explain it to an EAL child who was sitting there wanting to know how English works. Show me how English works. Show me how the grammar of English works. And I'll do it. Because he's a clever boy. He's clever. He already speaks another language. So he's sitting there trying to figure out how English works. And when you show him, when the teacher shows him how English works, he's like, beauty. Now you'll see how clever I am. I'm clever. He doesn't want to give you this. He doesn't want to give you this because he knows it doesn't sound clever. He knows, ask him to write in Korean, you'll see how clever he is. He's just waiting for the teacher to show him how English works. She shows him. That's what you can do. That's what happens when you invest in your teachers. What if we taught children to read from real books? Radical idea. I don't know why it's so radical. You know how we all learn to, the, how we, the history of writing and reading parallel each other. How did people learn to read? Huh. They read the realest book of all. It was the Bible that everybody learned to read from. You know the stories, you learn to read from the stories that you know. So why not learn to read from real books? It was publishers who sold you the idea. 
that you don't need to read from a real book. We all bought the idea. I don't know why we bought the idea. Of course you can learn to read from a real book. Oh, but kids need to know their sounds. Guess what? Real books are full of sounds. But kids need to know their 100 most frequent words. Guess what? They're the 100 most frequent words. <laughs> They're in real books. If we taught kids to read from real books, it's crucial for writing. Because our kids will only ever read, write as long as they have read. So if they're not reading well, they can't write well. They will continue to write the way they speak until they see that the grammar of writing is different from the grammar of talk. The only way to learn the grammar of writing is to read good writing. So do not simplify your texts. Do not say, oh, this year eight group, they could never do Shakespeare. Let's just do the movie, 10 things I hate about. Don't say, oh, yeah, but this year nine group really struggles in science, so we'll just watch that um, YouTube video on photosynthesis. They have to read like scientists if they're going to succeed in the scientific field. They have to read like historians <coughs> if they're going to succeed in the history class. Okay? Don't simplify the text for them. Teach up to the text. Is ACT data for reading. The low benchmark, not a bad graph at all. We do, for year three, this, this is the same cohort over time, they did pretty well. Pretty well. Right? Improved them a lot between year three and year five. Good work. At benchmark, that, that looks like a good graph, doesn't it? That's an improvement of kids at benchmark. Although, hang on, a little bit of illogic about that. You can't increase below and increase at. So where does the increase at come from? This line. Told you I'm worried about these kids who are far above. You're managing the kids down below. You're managing with the basics. You're doing okay with the kids who are below. It's these kids who are far above that I'm really worried about. not have added value to that 35% of kids who are far above in reading. They must have been a joy to teach. They can read. They must have been a joy to teach them. So what did we not do for them? How did we not add value to them? How do they learn the magic of the written word if we raise them on low nutrition texts? What sort of books do they read? And if you're complaining about the fact that they're on technology all the time, then make sure that you give a richer diet at school. How rich is the diet that we give them at school? There you go, George Bernard Shaw, make it a rule never to give a child a book that you wouldn't read yourself. So if you're not prepared to read six salt patties on top, don't give it to your kids. What if we taught children to read from real books? I'll tell you what, this is what happens. This is lovely kindergarten prep classes for Joseph's and Bedgeworth. I'm going to read you this five-year-old's writing. Um, have a listen to her understanding of what writing is. The next morning, 
the fire was gouging towards the neighborhood, suddenly scaring the village away and burning every house down to the ground and burnt the trees. Finally, it was over. The earth was licked bare. The five-year-old who still knows writing is magical. I know she doesn't have the code of control. She will have. She's got great code control beginning there. She knows her ING. She knows all of her consonant sounds. Um, the only reason that you might be thinking, oh, she she's got a bit of trouble with spelling it, is because she's trying to spell words like neighborhood. If she was writing tick top pat on top, she'd be fine. She's got all those sounds. She's amazing. She understands the difference between speaking and writing. This is written language. The earth was lit bare. Where did she get this from? From the beautiful real books that her teacher does with her all year. That's where she gets her vocab from. That's where she gets her structures from. Don't get them from. No vocab, there's not even real words there. And no sentence structures there. No sentence structures in that. How do your kids learn these things if they don't read these things? So what have we taught up? What if instead of leveling the text down to the kids, we taught the kids up to the text? This investment in publishers because they buy they sell you the books that level down to the kids. It's an investment in teachers. That is, whoa, how will we give the teachers the skills and knowledge and pedagogies they need to teach these kids up into the text, into the authentic text of the discipline, into the authentic texts that you need them to be able to read. What happens when you teach up? So this is a little boy from Deer Park West Western Suburb School in Melbourne. He's in year one, he's EAL. This is him at the beginning of the year. Uh, I went to India on the holidays and I watched movies with my brother and we played outside. Went to my sister's house and me and my brother played with my sister and we played uh, lots of things. It was fun. Very typical year one writing, but also typical errors of an EAL student. Now, you could look at this piece of writing and think, so what do you have to do with him? Really struggling there, I can hear with some of his menial vowels. that with him, and I don't think he understands the digraph yet. So we should do the digraph work with him. Okay, we'll put him in that program that we've got. Sound letters and any other one that's like that. Put him in that program. Build up those sounds that he's having a bit of trouble with. Or you do the opposite and you say. What do I need him to be able to write like? And then you teach him up to that. Don't look at mm, how far back do we have to go? Instead, look at where do I need them to be? And teach up. And so she does. His year one teacher teaches up. And she does real, authentic, rich literature with rich vocabulary and uh, wonderful, literate, grammatical sentence structure. And she teaches the children how the author's making that language work to communicate. And in doing so, she builds their vocabularies 
and she builds their ability to write use written grammar creatively. And so what does he then write? Two turns later, he's doing his writing again, and he writes, in a forest in the woods was a little broken house. Smoke came out like a little evil snake. It was extremely hot. Seven little sparks brought a very big fire alive. People grieved and cried. Some people survived. Some animals survived. A big boy crashed his car and survived. His parents were very sad. The reason why the boy crashed his car is the smoke. He couldn't see in the smoke. Firemen came and tried to stop the big beast. If his teacher had thought, no, I'm having a lot of trouble with his sounds, would the work she had done with him allow him to develop that vocabulary? <coughs> to develop those beautiful written structures. No. And what happened along the way as she did this deep and rich vocabulary and grammatical structures with her class? Guess what? They learned their sounds as well, because as it turns out, words have sounds in them. So they learned everything that they needed to. He learned his digraphs, he learned his medial vowels, and he expanded his spoken vocabulary have a gorgeous, rich, written vocabulary. That's what happens in the teacher. What, what if we understood that templates were just the scaffold into writing? I now read Naphtan Year 9 writing scripts and think, my goodness, Australia is one student because you're all writing the same essay. I strongly believe, firstly, secondly, <laughs> thirdly, in conclusion. <laughs> I read that essay a uh, hundred times last year, all on the driverless car. What if we understood that those templates were the scaffold into writing, not the end of the story? In fact, you want them to break the scaffold, not to stick to it. Year nine teachers, I tell them, you know that scaffold you're doing with them? They did it in year two, and year three, and year four, and year five. What if we stop handing out recipes for the kids to write to? And here's a good reason why. So here's the 10 NAPLAN marking criteria, and I think they're fine. I like these writing criteria. They're all excellent. Do you know how much that scaffold is worth? Four marks. I reckon we've spent 80% of writing instruction time on four marks for the last 15 years. Time to teach something else. Time to do something else. What happens when you do do something else? This is what you get. My thanks again to the lovely St. Joseph's teacher. This is, <coughs> this is the information report that they have to do. Do an information report, choose an animal, do a report about it, and boom, what happens? As winter approaches, an arctic fox saunters along the frozen water's edge, looking for its meal. He thinks about how the food will begin to become scarce and then he'll have to steal from other animals. <coughs> he comes upon a lemmy. Crouching low on his belly, he creeps towards the feeding lemmy. That's what happens when you teach kids that, you know that scaffold that we gave you for the information report? That was just the beginning of the story, not the end of the story. That was just there to help you understand how you organize 
being recorded wasn't like the scaffold for the rest of all time. You know that orientation complication resolution that we've been doing with you for all time? Guess what? Most books don't follow it. The, the, those scaffolds that we gave them, I get why we give them to our kids. I get why we give them. But when we give them, we're saying to them, this is the scaffold, we're going to be able to take this away. And you're going to have freedom to do what you want to do with writing. What if we didn't talk about introducing writing for Pleasure Fridays? <laughs> because writing was pleasurable. What if we stopped the Monday morning ritual of writing about what I did on the weekend? Because really there are better things to write about. What if we stopped giving kids 40 minutes to write a story or an essay? Because really nobody in the real world ever writes like that. What if writing classes had a real purpose? What if kids wrote wanting to tell other people messages of significance, things that are meaningful for them? What if it became a genuine community act again? What if we read what they had to say? Not marked it, not assessed it, but read it like a reader. Would that change their motivation? What if the magic wasn't something we took away in kinder and promised back only to those who make it to the end? What if Olive kept the magic all through school? Just like the little five-year-olds who wrote about the fire gouging towards the neighborhood. Just like the year six girl who wrote about the crouching upon his bed. The lemmings, he came upon the lemmings. What if politicians asked educators what the writing data means? You know, you. Instead of vested interest, businessmen, health professionals, ideologues. Because I will tell you, when I look at the writing data over time, this is what I see. Ooh, excellent job in the basics. Not so good with the rest. This is not a story of the kids don't have the basics. They have the basics. It's the conflict they don't have. What if we didn't buy into the back-to-basics discourse? What if we stood up and said, hang on, we're the ones in front of kids, we're the ones teaching them, we're the ones looking at the data, the issue is not the basics, the issue is the complex, can you put your money into there? Put your intervention there. What if we brought back the magic in our hands? I'm going to leave you with the magic. This is a magic of words, I think. So you'll know Adam Hills, I'm sure. Adam Hills is married to Ali. Alan Greger, who's a singer. And so Adam loves words. So does Ali. Adam speaks words. Ali sings words. And so in this little bit of magic where Adam and Ali have got together, Adam is speaking the words of uh, Clancy of And Ali is singing the words Magical, I think words are, and when we like want our kids to leave school remembering how magical words are.
Cumberland here, Clancy. Got a driving down the Cooper where the Westall drovers go. As the stock is slowly stringing, Clancy rides behind and sing. The drover's life hath pleasures that the townsfolk never know. Wish I knew what you Difference 
world who are so connected to the issues who would make the best of this power. Who would make the best of it. So can we see some magic? 